Matthew chapter 23, we're continuing a section of Jesus' ministry that we've dubbed his pre-resurrection ministry. It's known traditionally, historically, as the week of passion. It's a week that began with the triumphal entry. It will reach a low point with Jesus' crucifixion. It will rise to a crescendo with his resurrection. It's not the last week of Jesus' life by any stretch of the imagination, or even the last week of his ministry. But it is the last week of this pre-resurrection period. Jesus here, it's Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, it's hard to pin it down specifically. But he's had this tit for tat, he's been teaching the people. Now again, on Sunday, Jesus presents himself to Jerusalem. He presents himself to the children of Israel. He presents himself, as John declared at the beginning of his ministry, as the Lamb of God, presented by God to take away the sins of the world. The lambs were always presented on Sunday. Then they would go through a four-day period of inspection. This is what Jesus is engaged in, a period of inspection. And that includes this tit-for-tat with the religious leaders of Israel. In the previous chapter, Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians, the right. Asked a series of questions, and Jesus answered them. And then he was approached by the Sadducees, another group, the left, the scribes. Jesus is going back and forth. He closes the chapter, and we transition now to the final words of Jesus to the religious establishment, and you can say more broadly, beyond the religious establishment of Israel, religion in general. I should define very quickly religion, and what I mean by religion. Because religion comes in all different shapes and and sizes, all different definitions and persuasions. Religion manifests through different teachers and, 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 and scholars and cultures and ethnicities. Religion has all kinds of faces, But religion possesses the same heart regardless of its diversity. There are fundamentally two approaches to God. There is a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. All of religion is this bottom-up approach to God. Religion, in its essence, presents a mechanism, a way that we as human beings can try to attain achieve, earn the favor of God, the blessing of God. If you want just a simple illustration, it is man, all religion, man reaching to God. And religion and its persuasions will give all kinds of mechanisms, all kinds of ladders by which you can better yourself, work to attain God's favor, atone for sin, all kinds of things for you to try to achieve something, a favor from God, so that when you stand before him one day, God will say, you can go to heaven because you're a good person. I've weighed, I've measured it, I've balanced it. You've done enough. That's religion. Whether it's Judaism in Jesus' day, or Roman Catholicism, or various persuasions of even Protestantism, whether it's Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Mormonism, whatever isms it might be, they all provide you some way that you can earn God's favor. Because there's a fundamental desire for God's favor and a recognition of fallenness, of brokenness, of sin. It's innate. It's inherent. It's why the majority of people are religious. Because they understand there is a need. 
But as, as mentioned, there is a second approach. All religion fits into this one category of man reaching up to God. But the Bible says that man can never reach God. In fact, the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of a holy standard. You can't do anything to achieve or earn or merit God's favor. We all fall short. Even your best attempts, your, your most sincere efforts fall short. Even your best disciplines. This reaching up to God, we can never reach high enough. And yet the Bible says that while you are absolutely screwed, there is a remedy. For while man cannot reach to God, God decided to reach down to man in the person of his son Jesus. And that it's no longer about your best attempts, but his perfection. It's not about your sacrifice to be good enough, but his sacrifice to make you something else. To make you holy and righteous. It's not about you being good enough. It's about the fact he was good enough. And Jesus will have here addressing religion. Yes, it will be specific to Judaism and the Pharisees and those those scholars of the day, that's true. But it's broader than that. Jesus is speaking to all religious persuasion. And he's condemning it. These are his final words of it. We're going to try to cover the whole, the whole chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 23. So Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. So that's the audience. It's the crowd. Jesus is probably in the temple. Maybe Solomon's portico off to the side. He's in a large enough area for the crowds to gather. His disciples are there. The 12 apostles, the other group of women and other folks that were traveling with him. The crowds had gathered. No doubt they had been privied, uh, witness to the audience of this battle royale with the religious class. He speaks to the multitudes. <coughs> and he says to them, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees, Sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen. By men. Jesus begins here by warning the multitudes about the teachers that they have, the teachers that they adopt. He's speaking to these men and that culture. They've appointed for themselves, they sit in Moses' seat, which is not a biblical thing, honestly. There's not a seat of Moses in the law, some designated position. That's the case. And yet these men had appointed themselves a particular role. And it's known that in the synagogue, which is a place that was developed during the Babylonian captivity, there was a seat of importance where a rabbi or a scribe or a Pharisee could come into the synagogue. It would be a place designated for him. It was a seat that communicated authority. And the Pharisees would come and they would sit in Moses' seat. And Jesus says what they're communicating, the word, always focus on the word, But you should be very careful of the people. 
and specific to these men, they talk a good game, but Jesus is saying what? They don't live consistent with the things that they say. Jesus is getting to the heart. And then he lays out their motivation. He says, why do they do what they do? Well, they, they do it to be seen by men. Again, they had structured this whole system of holiness. It's only sellable if they can emulate it. But they can only emulate it by concealing the truth of who they are and the failure of the system by projecting out some position of morality, some vantage point of holiness. Man, haven't we seen over, over the years that gets stripped away so often with our religious leaders? Even within Protestantism, men that we look at, that we've admired, that we, that we follow their teaching, and then at some point, what? You come to find out they were hypocrites. It's interesting about this chapter that Matthew will use the word hypocrite, quoting Jesus, seven times. More so in any other chapter of the Bible. Matthew used the words, word, uses the word hypocrite more than any other gospel writer. Don't forget that Matthew, known as Levi, he was a Levite. In our introduction to the book itself, I noted that how does a Levite... Someone born in the religious class, born to be a priest, born into a religious family, born knowing the Torah, born memorizing the law. How does that person end up as a tax collector, which is Matthew's story? How does someone going, go from, from being in the holy class to being a total outcast, turncoat, traitor? I think, and again, maybe revealed in, in the words that Matthew tends to pick up on, he saw the hypocrisy in it. He realized this is empty. This is worthless. These people are hypocrites. They speak one thing. They live a different way. And it's a facade, and I want nothing to do with it, which is what gravitated him to Jesus, because he saw something real, something honest, something sincere, something different. A person, not a code. So these men, Jesus says, they do what they do to be seen by men, to gain attention. He gives us some examples of this, continuing in verse 5. He says they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. A phylactery was, was written passages of scripture that they would, they would wrap on their forehead, they would wrap on their arms. It was a symbol of, of religion. It was a, you see it today in Orthodox Judaism. You'll see phylacteries still being employed. It was to keep their mind on God's word. Again, not a bad idea. And yet, and yet Jesus is pointing out, have you noticed how big the phylacteries are? Like that clearly it's not so much about a holiness or a heart issue, but it's, it's, a, it's a show. They're big, they're broad, they're ornate. They're wanting to be seen by men. Verse 6, they love the best places at the feasts. The best seats in the synagogue, again, a desire, a passion, a longing. They love greetings in the marketplace. To be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you, now note that. So Jesus is speaking to the multitudes that include his disciples. He tells them, be weary of these guys. Be weary of these teachers. They're, they're posers. They're fakes. And their motivation, well, it's to be seen by men. He calls it out. Now he pivots to an application. But you, 
Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you're all brethren. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Now now we should pause for a moment to, to try to unpack what it is that Jesus is saying and what he's not. It, it doesn't seem that Jesus is, is excluding what we might call ordained positions. I'll give you an example of this. Jesus cautions about being called a rabbi, teacher, father. Interesting, you can go through the Pauline epistles. Paul will refer to himself as every one of those things. <laughs> He will call himself a father. He will call himself a teacher. He'll refer to himself using such terminology. It seems to be a difference in the idea of a position and a title. A title that you take upon yourself versus a position that you hold. The truth of the matter is that when it comes to ordained positions... They're not for the picking and choosing. By definition, ordained means that God chose and God picked and God ordained. Always be weary of someone that puts titles to themselves. As opposed to someone that maybe fills a role. As an example, am I a pastor? Yes. Is that a title? Sure. Is that a title that designates a certain position? Unequivocally. Did I pick it? No. In fact, if I could have done anything else with my life, I would have. I couldn't run from it. God called me on September 11th. And no matter what I tried to do, I was called to be a pastor. It's not a title I apply to myself. It's something that God has ordained. Now, I will say this. I always get uncomfortable when someone calls me Pastor Zach. (laughs) I, I just get uncomfortable with it. Now, I understand the sentiment behind it. There's the acknowledgement of, hey, like, hey, you have a role in my life, pastor. But at the same time, I'm equal with you. There's nothing that makes me any different. You actually have ordained roles as well. It's all part about being in the body of Christ. And they're all equal roles. They're just different. They're different in, in, in their application, in their purpose. Bishop Adams. No. No, no, no. I can always be weary, leery, of people that like to take upon titles to themselves. I think that's what Jesus is warning. Doesn't mean that there's not position. Hey, there are people in my life that I view as spiritual fathers. Is that something that, that, hey, Zach, I'm your spiritual dad? No, you're not. You're not my spiritual daddy. You don't get to choose that. Now, there are men that have filled that role. So it seems that Jesus is making this distinction. Okay, there are positions. And those things occur naturally and God ordains them as opposed to people that take titles. We do not make elders at Calvary 316. We recognize elders. We recognize men that God has ordained, that God has called, that God has put an anointing on. We are rec- we're confirming God's ordination. We don't make the man. 
well, Zach, I feel like I, I need to have a greater role in the church. Well, do a role. Like, don't wait for a title to fulfill a calling. If God has given you a calling, then obey God. And don't wait for the title. Religion, isn't it true, loves titles? And it loves the authority and the prestige and all the things that come with it. Religion. Now, verse 11. Jesus will contrast this. He says, but he who is great is among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. See, within the kingdom, true greatness, it's the inverse of how the world measures it. And keep in mind, put yourself in the first century. You know, if you're looking for a way that you might be able to designate or, or, or to kind of quantify, to measure your greatness within that culture, within that society, Roman society, where three-quarters of the world are, are slaves, what would you do? Well, how many, sla- how many people serve you? I mean, that would be a good, a good indicator of your greatness. Well, I've got 100 servants, and you have 10. Up your game, bro. Right? It's like if we're looking for a way to quantify, it's like, well, I have so many people that serve me, and that makes me great. Same thing happens in this world, doesn't it? We often measure our greatness by how many employees we have, how many people are under us, how many people we're responsible for. We look at the person at the bottom of, of, of the corporate chain. Well, you're, you're the least. But I'm the CEO. Everybody's responsible to me. Jesus says in the kingdom, that might be how it works in the world, but in the kingdom, it's the opposite. In fact, you don't measure greatness by how many people you serve you. You measure greatness by how many people you serve. Well, Zach, what does that mean in a practical sense, serve? I'll define it in the most simplistic terms. A servant. A servant is someone that focuses on making someone else their life better. Easy example. Easy example. As a man, you're called to serve your wife. That's your job. It's not to guilt her into serving you. Your job, chief and foremost, is to serve your wife. Practically, what does that mean? What are you doing, husband? To creatively find ways to make your wife's life better. Easy. Is it taking an opportunity to go pick up the kids from school so that she can take a nap? That's service. We had baseball this weekend. I don't know if you're aware. It is cold. It's like the polar vortex came down. And yesterday, we're at the ballpark. We had four games. Quincy had two. Theodore had two. And, and it was we didn't it was dark by the time we ended and it was cold and then we found out these people that organize baseball they're demons you know why because it's all Sunday morning and you can't escape it shame on them shame on them Theo's game started at 10 o'clock this morning it's like 20 degrees outside 
How a bunch of eight-year-olds going to play baseball in 20-degree weather? So my wife last night, man, I just, I knew she was going to have to go, and it was a thing. She was shivering. She was cold. I drove to Dick's. Now, I'm not tooting my own horn, kind of, but I drove to Dick's Sporting Goods last night on the way home because I was like, all right, service. How can I serve my wife? I'm, I got to be at church. Jessica has to be in the free. My wife hates the cold. So I went to Dick's Sporting Goods, and I went to the camping section, a section I've never frequented. <laughs> you know why? Because God made houses. Why do I want to go camping? 4,000 years of human history, we lived in tents. And the moment we were like, we don't have to do this, we stopped. And like you travel to another town, you don't have to take your home with you. You can rent one. It's amazing. So this weird section of dicks, this camping section, I bought her a polar vortex minus 10 degree sleeping bag. So she could sit there in a sleeping bag, one that wrapped over his head, where it just, she sent me a picture right before the service. I mean, and I got the brightest color. She was like, why couldn't you get me a neutral? Because I want to know where you are. (laughs) You stick out like a banana. But, But seriously, as a man, like, service, to be a servant. It doesn't have to be big things. But look for little things. Hey, do you know as a parent, you're to serve your kids? That doesn't mean you let them do whatever they want to do. But how do you bless them? How do you serve them? Your neighbor, that co-worker. Hey, you measure greatness in the kingdom of God, not by how many people serve you, but by how many people you're a servant to. And then he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's a promise. Like, the tense in which that's articulated is like, this is a law, Jesus is saying. This is how it is. He who exalts himself will be humbled. By who? God. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, please understand, humility. We have kind of a warped sense of what what humility means. We often kind of sometimes, like, misinterpret self-deprecation as being a form of humility. I hate myself. I'm so bad. Look at me. I'm humble. That's not humility. That's just you being an idiot. It's actually the opposite. You're taking a lot of pride in how pathetic you are. No, no, humility. The best definition of humility I can give you is having a correct and appropriate view of self. Contrast that with the opposite, pride. What is pride? It's when your perspective of self is no longer attached to reality. You think you're much better than you are. Now, humility is not being self-deprecating. It's just having an awareness like at any moment I can totally mess up my entire life. I'm capable of that. So I got to be humble. Man, I know what's in me. Right? But he was humble. God will exalt. Those are the people that he's looking for. Now, we transition. Jesus, man, you want to talk about like, he takes a bazooka out and starts just blasting away. I mean, really. And we call these the woes. 
There's eight of them. Eight woes. Now, what's a woe? <laughs> well, how do you use it? As you, you're a good parent, you're standing there on the street corner. Maybe you're in downtown Monroe going to Scoops. You got to cross those that to the traffic. You got your little ones. And boom, someone comes running up. They're going to run right out into the traffic. What do you do? Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a whoa. You understand what's being articulated? A whoa, whoa, which is interesting because Jesus is speaking to the religious people. He's like, whoa, which means what? You don't woe someone if you don't love someone. Like There are some kids that's like they go running towards the traffic, and I'm like, Man, sorry, buddy. Like, you only stop someone you love, someone you remotely care about. Whoa! Don't go headlong into traffic. It's the heart of what Jesus is saying. Whoa! So, while what Jesus says will be very difficult and challenging, understand right from the jump. It is rooted in a desire to say what? Stop it. Stop it. What you're doing is going to get you hurt and destroyed. It's not a good path. Woe, Jesus. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 13. Hypocrites. So nice. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What? I mean, right from the bat, he's like, hey, you religious people, you're not going to heaven. You can't say that. He's Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He can say it. He's saying, hey, this whole structure you got, it falls short. You're not going to heaven. And what's even worse is the people you're leading aren't going either. This is a random thought. You know the one thing worse than being in hell is being in hell with someone you also led there. Because guess what? For eternity, they're kind of upset. And you can't escape them. So woe, verse 14, the second one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's trying to drive home a point, isn't he? For you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense... Make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, this is within the context of what he's already said about them. That they say one thing, they act another way. He's like an example of this is the widows. You know, the Bible is very clear about taking care of widows and orphans. These men, under the pretense of taking care of them, were actually robbing from them. And beyond that, they would make these great prayers. And Jesus is like, hey, guess what? He ain't listening and because of all this whole facade, and you misrepresenting God, and misleading the people, and taking advantage of the vulnerable, which religion does constantly. There's several stations on TV. You can see it in action. What does Jesus say to them? Therefore, because of this, anytime you see a therefore, ask, what's it there for? So this is in the context of what he's just said. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation, which has an interesting application. Don't get me wrong, hell will be terrible for everyone. But there seems to be greater variety, greater versions, greater condemnation. 
Verse 15, the third woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselytize, or a Greek convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. First he's saying, you're a son of hell, and then you go out to recruit more sons of hell. You're taking advantage of people. Again, you're misrepresenting. People are being converted to a perversion. It's not the gospel. Fourth woe, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. I like that. He changes it up a little. Blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold (coughs) or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. (coughs) Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, (coughs) swears by it, and by all the things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it, and him who dwells on it. And he who swears by heaven swears on the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now Jesus is addressing something specific within Jewish culture and the way that these men were twisting their obligations and twisting their promises and workarounds. Where they would make these holy proclamations to God, but they would find the, uh, the silver lining. You know, the part of the contract that you've got to have a, te- a, a you know, microscope to look at. The details. The devil's in the details. And these guys, they would make these great promises but they would have like escape clauses built into it. And Jesus is addressing this within the context, the confines of Judaism. But broaden it. I mean, the fundamental nature of religion is a promise. It's a promise we fall short in. You know, you make promises to God all the time. You know what you don't understand? God has never asked you to make a promise. And so when you make a promise and you fall short of that promise, guess what you feel? Condemnation. But Paul will say there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if I make a promise, I inevitably fail, and then I feel the condemnation of it. But I'm not supposed to have condemnation, but I know I'm going to fail. Logic, don't make promises. Why? God ain't asking for them. Your guarantee of salvation isn't on the promises you make, but a promise he made. And we do this, why do we make promises? We make promises because fundamentally it gives us some role, some responsibility, some sense of worthiness. I made a promise, I followed through, I'm worth it. It's hell. It's false. It's not expected, it's not articulated, it's not divine. It's about His promises, it's about His guarantees not about yours. The only, only promise you're, you're supposed to give is to give your life to Christ. That just means you let go of it all, which means what? You don't have the right even then to make a promise because it's not you anymore. You let go. It's about him. It's about his desires. It's about his will. It's not about you coming to God and being like, if you do this, I'll do that. This is what he's condemning. The fifth, 
of these woes. Woe to you, verse 23. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise, which is dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus mixes no words, does he? You know what's funny? Isn't it interesting that that religion, when you boil it down, it will center on two things, right? All the time. It's it's amazing how it works. Promises, oaths, and what? Money. It always gets to money, doesn't it? And Jesus is pointing this out. He's like, you guys, you guys and money. Because you have it backwards. It's about the heart. He says, you pay, you're so specific and counting out all even your little seeds, making sure nine for me, one for God, nine for me, one for God. Like, it's painstaking. And yet, Jesus says, and you do that to feel good about yourself, to feel holy, to feel righteous, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And, and then, what's, it's, it's interesting, you can study this on your own, Jesus actually defines what the weightier matters of the law actually are. There are weightier matters, and he names them justice, mercy, and faith. Blind guides strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Within the the law of all of the animals that were clean, unclean, of the unclean animals, the smallest was the gnat, and the largest was the camel. So Jesus is making a, a play on words, a picture. He goes, the little gnat gets into your mouth. You start coughing it up, trying to get it out, straining out the gnat, making sure there's no gnats in, 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 in the wine. And at the same time, you're eating a good old camel burger. He's like, you're focusing on the wrong things. And doesn't, doesn't religion do that? You know, as, as kind of a textbook of religion, have you ever noticed that religion loves, oh, it loves to major on minors at the expense of major things? Well, I think it's an abomination to wear a hat in church. I'm just glad you're in church. You wear whatever you want. Christians, Christians shouldn't dance. Well, some of them. But who cares? Like, why do you care? Have you ever noticed really religious people, even within Protestantism, that are so worked up on the things they do for God or sacrifice for God, they always focus on things that don't matter. Jesus calls this out. Nothing new. Sixth woe, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Obviously, he's not talking about a cup, right? He's speaking to them. They're superficial. Blind Pharisees, 
first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, so the outside of them may be clean also. Jesus is more concerned with an internal righteousness, not external acts of righteousness. And why? Here's why. Great question. External acts of righteousness can be fake. Can't they? In fact, external acts of righteousness within the context of everything that Jesus is saying honestly can't really be relied upon to what? To reach a proper conclusion of who that person is. But but if you flip it, if the person's righteous, what will automatically always happen? If there's an internal heart that's changed, what? What manifests from their life automatically starts to change. The seventh. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and are unclean. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And what is he saying? He's saying, you might be able to fake everybody else, but God sees it. You can't pull one over on God. God sees what's on the inside. The part that no one else can see, God is very aware. And in this time, again, this week, if you were to come into contact with a, a, a tomb, it would make you unclean, which means you would have to go through a seven-day period of purity. Well, you've been traveling so many miles to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and all around Jerusalem, guess what there are? A lot of tombs. And so leading up to Passover, it was a traditional thing that they would put fresh paint, fresh coats of paint, white paint on tombs, so that there was no, like, I accidentally bumped into something that was unclean. So Jesus, there's an object lesson right there, and he's like, this is what you got. It looks great. But inside eighth and final woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we have lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves. And you are sons of those who murder the prophets. He's saying, there's no difference between you and them. Fill up then, verse 32, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, basically sons of Satan, the offspring of evil. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Yeah, heavy. Pretty self-explanatory. Doesn't need a lot of commentary. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. Now notice something fascinating about that statement. Jesus is, is, is these whoa, 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 eight of them. He gets to the last one. He's like, you guys think you're better than, the pro- than, than your fathers of old that persecuted the prophets. God would send people to them. They would murder them. They would vile them. They would mistreat them. 
They, they do all kinds of evil against them, and you're like, well, we would never have done it. You're about to do worse, aren't they? And then he, he just the, imagine the moment. I mean, everyone in the crowd's like, oh, Jesus, you went there. Where he's looking at these men, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I, I send you. Notice something. What is Jesus claiming there? Divinity. Godhood. Make no mistake about it. The, 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 the tense, the term, Jesus is making an absolute claim here. He's saying, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them, and now he's being predictive. You will kill and crucify. We see that within the disciples. Some of them. You will scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city. Read the book of Acts, you'll see it. That on you may come all the righteous blood of the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bacchiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Within the Hebrew Bible, first story is Abel, Cain and Abel, righteous Abel. The last is Second Chronicles, is the way that it works. And the last story is the execution of Zechariah. Religion has killed all the prophets I've sent to you, is what he's saying. And the blood of every single one of them isn't on these other people. It's on you. Surely I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. In verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Pause. Because, again, you know, one of the limitations is we don't have time. Oh, to, to, to watch the video to listen to the audio, to hear Jesus, right? It would have been in Hebrew or Aramaic. We wouldn't have understood it, but you would have picked up on the tense, right? I think Jesus goes from this just vindication, this, for lack of a better phrase, this an angry tone, to probably this exhale. Where he says, oh, Jerusalem. And I think there's a pause. Jerusalem. Again, do a study on your own of all the times that God duplicates a name. From Abraham to Moses. Just go through the scriptures. Interesting, interesting study on itself. But it's always this, this, this endearment. Again, these are woes. These are warnings. And then there's another exclaim of love and heartbroken. It's because he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be rejected. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Luke tells us, chapter 19, that Jesus, while he's saying this, is weeping. Only two times in the Gospels that we're told of Jesus weeping. The first is at the tomb of his best friend, Lazarus. We're told, again, the shortest verse, Jesus wept. And then it's the same here. The death of a loved one. He says, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See your house. And he says, see your house is left to you desolate. 
For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which you can see prophetically being fulfilled in Zechariah 12, verse 10. Again, Jesus, a mention, precursor of the condition of Israel for his second coming, that while they rejected him, there will come a day that they will accept him. And we'll get into that more in the weeks to come. But I want to point out in closing here, kind of two, two phrases in the midst of this that I think encapsulates it. I have highlighted. Notice, go back to verse 37. Jesus says, I wanted. I wanted. You see that? I wanted. But then look at the conclusion. But you were not willing. Wow. God. Yeah, I'm not going to stand here and tell you I know how, how it all works. Other than I can say that God is absolutely, totally sovereign, and you've been predestined before the foundations of the world, and I can, I can say that God so loved the world, that whosoever will. How it all wrecked, I'm just, I'm not God. I'm glad he knows. I don't need to. But what I can say, and again, it's illustrated here, Jesus is saying, there is something that I want to do, and I can't. Because you're not willing to let me. I want to do something in your life so passionately. You have no idea what I want to do. And the only thing that's stopping me from doing it is your stubborn will. I wanted, but you were not willing. What does God want to do in your life? What work is He wanting? And only He can perform. What part of that heart you haven't let go of, that hurt you haven't released, that sin you haven't confessed? What is that thing where Jesus is like, I want to do so much there. let me just let me but I'm a gentleman and I won't force myself upon anyone the only thing the only thing that can stop the radical work that God wants to do in your life is you so Father Lord we just let that be 